Section two of the Shipwreck by William Falconer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Phil Schempf. Memoir of Falconer, Part two. At this time, or shortly before, Falconer is said to have paid a final visit to Scotland. Dr. Irving, in a sketch of the poet's life, first mentioned the fact, adding that Falconer resided for some time at the manse of Gladsmuir, which was then possessed by his illustrious kinsman, Dr. Robertson. This great historian, whose father was the cousin German of old Falconer, seems to have been proud to acknowledge his relationship to the ingenious self-taught poet. Dr. Irving, however, is wrong either as to the date of Falconer's visit or the residence of Dr. Robertson. If the former took place, as he states, after the publication of the shipwreck, the poet must have met his kinsman in Edinburgh, for Robertson left Gladsmuir in 1758. The meeting most probably took place in the Scottish capital, and each had a special cause for congratulation. Robertson, by his first work, The History of Scotland, had reached the highest popularity. Falconer, by his one poem, had earned scarcely less distinction. Overcoming by the force of native genius the difficulties incident to his nautical task, and uniting with his technical lore the inspiration and energy of a true poet. We have no record of the feelings of Falconer on revisiting, at this interesting period, the haunts of his boyhood, the old Netherbow Port and High Street, and the shores of Leith, whence, sad at heart, he had first embarked on the sea. There was usually much disappointment at such reunions every object appears less than memory aided by imagination had represented it schoolboy friends are gone or the few that are left busy with their own pursuits seem cold and careless we look for some cherished object a house or tree and it is removed time has hastened on and we forget that its flight effaces the old landmarks but falconer had not lived in vain he had struggled through the past up to worldly honor, and he could look forward into the future without dread, solaced and cheered by domestic happiness. His fortunes, however, were always fluctuating. After the peace, his ship, the Glory, was laid up in ordinary at Chatham, and a purser's half-pay was but a slender provision. At this juncture he found a kind and considerate friend in one of the commissioners of the Navy, Mr. Hanway brother of Jonas Handway, whose controversy with Johnson on the qualities and effects of tea has preserved his name better than his published travels, foreign or domestic. Commissioner Hanway admired the genius of the purser of the glory, and he set about preparing for him an appropriate residence. The captain's cabin, says Mr. Clark, was ordered to be fitted up with a stove and with every addition of comfort that could be procured in order that Falconer might thus be enabled to enjoy his favorite propensity, literary occupation, without either molestation or expense. The first emanation from this marine study was a new edition of the shipwreck, corrected and enlarged, which appeared in an octavo volume in 1764, printed not for the author, as in the former instance, but for A. Millar in the Strand, this enlarged edition was almost a new work. Above 900 lines were added, and these included all what may be called the character painting of the poem, 
as the delineations of albert and rodmond and the episode of polemon in the advertisement falconer made this statement although it is so frequent a practice to take the advantage of public approbation and raise the price of performances that have been much encouraged the author chooses to steer in quite a different channel it being a considerable time since the first edition sold off notwithstanding the high price and the singularity of the subject he might very justly continue the price but as it deterred a number of the inferior officers of the sea from purchasing it at their repeated requests it has been printed now in a smaller edition at the same time the author is sorry to observe that the gentlemen of the sea for whose entertainment it was chiefly calculated have hardly made one-tenth of the purchasers falconer like arbuthnot knew his art but not his trade he was ambitious of his reputation for professional skill not covetous of money had the latter been his object he would probably like his countryman thompson though thompson was only driven to such a step by necessity or like the earlier georgian poets have had recourse to a subscription edition which his naval friends would no doubt have rendered profitable the next production of our author was a rhyming satire on lord chatham wilkes and churchill entitled the demagogue it must have been written after the publication of churchill's gotham in the spring of seventeen sixty four and before the death of that unscrupulous but powerful satirist in november of the same year nearly all the literary scotsmen of that period were engaged in defence of the butte administration it had become a point of honour with them as the contest seemed to be won as of old between the thistle and the rose wilkes churchill the whigs and dissenters were against scotland and scotsmen chatham abjured local and national prejudices but he fought on the same side never was the crown or government more fiercely assailed than at this time and besides nationality of feeling the perfervidum ingenium scotorum roused by repeated attacks falconer was bound both by gratitude and consistency to the side of the king's friends his best patron was the brother of his sovereign and his first poetical effort was devoted to the cause of royalty his demagogue however was a poor fragmentary performance remarkable for its virulence and not for its poetry of the tact humor or wit essential in political satire he was destitute his strength was derived from the sea and as the sailor fears to whistle in a storm falconer would have best consulted his fame by remaining silent during the noise and fury of the political elements the remaining five years of falconer's life are involved in some obscurity in seventeen sixty seven according to mr clark he was appointed from the glory to the swiftsure still we presume a purser and then we hear of his having left his naval retreat at chatham and of his being obliged to take up his abode in a garret in london deriving a pittance from writing in the critical review why he should have resigned his naval appointment does not appear he was too practical and too sensible a man to have abandoned a secure and respectable position for the precarious gains of authorship for which he had no particular vocation and the death of his patron the duke of york september seventeenth seventeen sixty seven could not we presume have caused his retirement the story of the garret is 
we suspect fabulous it is certain that falconer could not have struggled long as mr clark asserts against the res auguste domus for we have only a period of two years between seventeen sixty seven and his death and during that time one at least of his most intimate friends did not consider him to be in poverty a bookseller mr john murray grandfather of the present eminent publisher of that name requested the poet to join him as partner in a letter dated october sixteenth seventeen sixty eight mr murray writes to falconer then at dover that a certain mr sandby bookseller opposite st dunstan's church was about to retire from his shop in fleet street and that his business could be obtained for a sum not much beyond four hundred pounds i have little reason says mr murray to fear success by myself in this undertaking yet i think so many additional advantages would accrue to us both were your forces and mine joined that i cannot help mentioning it to you and making you the offer of entering into company the poet he added would be assumed as partner on equal terms this offer proves that falconer could not have been in very reduced circumstances in which he is represented by his biographers and it proves also that he must have possessed the correct and steady habits of a man of business he seems to have declined the offer probably because his marine dictionary was then near completion and he might reasonably anticipate from its publication some favorable naval appointment his dictionary appeared in august seventeen sixty nine dedicated to the lords commissioners of the admiralty it had engaged his utmost application he said for some years the undertaking was first suggested to him by his worthy and ingenious friend george lewis scott esq and its utility had been acknowledged by sir edward hawke and other naval authorities in a country deriving its principal sources of strength from the superiority of its marine such a work was evidently wanted and falconer had labored strenuously to render his dictionary accurate and complete all that related to the equipment and movements of a ship or to the practice of naval war was derived he said chiefly from his own observation in treating of the artillery he had consulted various authors and in the part connected with shipbuilding he acknowledged his obligations to monsieur du Hamel, a high authority on naval architecture who had written to him on the subject of his work in complimentary terms the dictionary we may add was a large quarto volume and was illustrated with a variety of original designs of shipping in different situations with separate views of the masts sails etc such an important service could not fail to attract the notice of the admiralty and remind them of the strong claims of its author accordingly we find that almost immediately after the publication of his dictionary falconer received an appointment which promised to be the most lucrative and considerable he had yet held the affairs of india were then in a critical position in consequence of the wars of hyder ali and of disputed territorial revenues and the company resolved on sending out three commissioners or supervisors invested with extraordinary powers for the emergency these were henry vansittart luke scrofton and colonel francis ford the aurora frigate was selected for the voyage and falconer was nominated as purser of the vessel with a promise that he would also receive the appointment of private secretary to the commissioners before embarking on this mission 
falconer prepared a third edition of the shipwreck he put his name on the title page left out the dedication and prefixed to the volume an advertisement stating that he had given the poem a strict and thorough revision from which he flattered himself that it had received very considerable improvements he was then living in somerset house from which this intimation is dated october first seventeen sixty nine the day preceding his departure from england about two hundred new lines were added to the poem and its general arrangement was improved favorite images and descriptions were expanded or finished off with greater care but the edition also had its defects in substituting simple for inflated expressions and in removing redundancies of description the poet occasionally rendered the passages bald and prosaic his attempts to generalize the technical details were also in some instances unfavorable precision as well as animation was lost mr clark conceived that falconer in his agitation and joy on being appointed to the aurora had neglected this addition and left the last alterations to his friend mallet this is an unwarranted and indeed absurd conjecture for mallet had been four years dead whatever were the moral and mental defects of mallet he was a good literary artist and had he retouched the shipwreck the poem as respects mere diction would probably have been the better for his revision but falconer's advertisement seems conclusive as to the third edition being revised by himself no other person would have taken such liberties with his text and the new passages introduced marked his own hand he may however have been hurried in his task by the necessity of preparing for his departure and we think mr clark acted judiciously as editor of the poem in collating the different editions and restoring the text to something like distinctness and purity not a line was inserted that had not been sanctioned by the author he was made to correct himself we have followed mr clark's example in this reprint of the shipwreck but have made a greater use of the third and latest edition the last seen by the poet the aurora sailed from spithead on the second of october seventeen sixty nine among the passengers beside the three commissioners was rev william hurst chaplain to the expedition an accomplished astronomer who had observed the transit of venus in seventeen sixty one at madras and who was afterwards associated with the astronomer royal in greenwich observatory from a letter written by this gentleman we learn that the aurora arrived at the cape of good hope on the sixth of december that the commissioners had been harmonious and happy on board ship and had been hospitably received by the dutch governor and his council they made various excursions into the country and finally left the cape after a fortnight's stay on the twenty seventh of december captain lee who commanded the frigate expressed his intention of proceeding by the mozambique channel instead of stretching as usual into the great indian ocean south of madagascar there is now little risk by the diligent use of sextant and chronometer in making this passage during the fair season from april to september but the channel abounds in shoals and captain lee was a stranger to the navigation while the season was too far advanced the commissioners remonstrated but the captain was obstinate mr vansittart was so impressed with the danger of the rash experiment that he would have quitted the aurora if another outward-bound east indiaman had been then at the cape the aurora sailed and the result justified the worst fears that had been entertained 
the ill-fated ship never reached its destination months and years elapsed but no tidings came the captain had spoken of touching at johanna one of the comoro islands for provisions he had also talked of landing on the island of st paul's inquiries were made but no trace of the vessel after her leaving the cape was ever obtained about four years afterwards on the nineteenth of october seventeen seventy three a seaman a negro was examined before the east india directors on the subject of the wreck he stated the aurora had struck on a reef of rocks off makoa that himself and four others were the only persons saved that he and his companions had been two years on an island after their escape and they had at length been rescued by a country ship which happened to touch at the island what credit was given to the man's statement is not mentioned the main fact the loss of the aurora was alas but too apparent and with her had perished the poet whose genius and fate had given so deep and melancholy an interest to the catastrophe farewell poor falconer when the dark sea bursts like despair i shall remember thee nor ever from the sounding beach depart without thy music stealing on my heart and thinking still i hear dread ocean say thou hast declared my might be thou my prey bowls the personal appearance and habits of falconer have been minutely described by mr clark from information communicated by those who knew the poet he was about five feet seven inches in height with a dark weather-beaten complexion and rather what is termed hard-featured being considerably marked with the smallpox his hair was of a brownish hue in point of address his manner was blunt awkward and forbidding but he spoke with great fluency and his simple yet impressive diction was couched in words which reminded his hearers of the terseness of swift though he possessed a warm and friendly disposition he was fond of controversy and inclined to satire his observation was keen and rapid his criticisms on any inaccuracy of language or expression were frequently severe yet this severity was always intended to create mirth and not by any means to show his superiority or give the smallest offence in his natural temper he was cheerful and frequently used to amuse his messmates by composing acrostics on their favourites in which he particularly excelled as a professional man he was a thorough seaman and like most of that profession was kind generous and benevolent the last remark betrays the amor propre of the naval chaplain falconer himself was less laudatory of the mass of his brother sailors and like fielding when delineating their character threw some shades into the picture he admitted however that there was to be found in almost every private sailor a virtue which was unknown to many of his officers the virtue of emulation there was hardly a common tar he said who was not envious of superior skill in his fellows and jealous on all occasions of being outdone in what he considered a branch of his duty this was preeminently the case with our author himself he not only mastered the principles and details of his profession so as to be able to compile his elaborate dictionary of the marine but he prided himself more on his reputation as a seaman than on his character as a poet the widow of falconer they had no children long survived him she obtained possession of his apartments in somerset house 
and was liberally assisted by Mr. T. Cattle, the publisher, who derived considerable profits from the continued sale of the Marine Dictionary and Shipwreck, of which he held the copyrights. Mr. Mosier, already mentioned, in one of his numerous communications to the European magazine, states that meeting the poet's widow one day, and expressing incidentally in conversation his admiration of the shipwreck, she burst into tears. She presented me, he adds, with a copy of the shipwreck, and seemed much affected by my commiseration of the misfortunes of a man whose work appears in its catastrophe prophetic. She died at Bath. The fame of Falconer rests securely on this one monument of his genius. Though limited to the simplicity of a narrative of facts, and chiefly to a single incident, his poem of the shipwreck possesses or suggests nearly all the primary elements of poetry and painting, of profound interest and overwhelming pathos. The sea, with its various phenomena of beauty and terror, its storm and sunshine, the stately ship with its magnificent tracery and equipage, and its gallant crew, the classic and picturesque shores of the Mediterranean, and the appalling event of the shipwreck, with its horrors, despair, and death. Such are the materials with which the poet had to deal in relating his story, new to epic lore. The opening lines of the first canto strike the keynote, as it were, to a train of romantic and interesting associations. A ship from Egypt, o'er the deep impelled, by guiding winds her course for Venice held. Of fame Britannia were the gallant crew, and from that isle her name the vessel drew. The name of Britannia, if fortuitous, was one of the felicities of the poet's subject. If assumed for the occasion, it furnishes an instance of his poetical art and skill. Had the ship been named the Mary Jane or the James Barnes, the effect would have been very different. But still more important towards the poetical treatment of the subject was the scene of the catastrophe, the shores of Greece. All the images and recollections arising from beautiful scenery, the august remains of ancient art, and the wisdom and patriotism of the most heroic age of the world were at once enlisted as auxiliaries of the story. The ship sailing along such shores became an object of deeper interest and of poetical sympathy, and its final destruction occurred at a spot memorable on that illustrious coast. In all Attica, says Byron, if we accept Athens itself and Marathon, there is no scene more interesting than Cape Colonna. To the antiquarian artist, sixteen columns are an inexhaustible source of observation and design. To the philosopher, the supposed scene of Plato's conversations will not be unwelcome, and the traveler will be struck with the beauty of the prospect over isles that crown the Aegean deep. But for an Englishman, Kelowna has yet an additional interest, as the actual spot of Falconer's shipwreck. Pallas and Plato are forgotten in the recollection of Falconer and Campbell. Here in the dead of night, by Lona's steep, the seaman's cry was heard along the deep. This temple of Minerva may be seen at sea from a great distance, and the imagination instantly conjures up its appearance on that fatal day when the lightning flashed among the ruined columns, and the doomed vessel, driven like a fury by the storm, bounded through the waves toward the rocky shore. In the softer scenes of the poem, this power of association and local painting has an inexpressible charm. 
and in the whole range of our descriptive poetry there is nothing finer than the pictures of the sunset and midnight on the shores of candia as seen from the sea the solemn calm and delicious beauty and repose of this eastern landscape prepare the reader by contrast for the nautical description that follows which is brought out with great effect the boatswain's whistle breaks the silence and the order to weigh anchor is given the sailors swarm aloft fix the bars and heave round the windlass up torn reluctant from its oozy cave the ponderous anchor rises o'er the wave high on the slippery masts the yards ascend and far abroad the canvas wings extend along the grassy plain the vessel glides while asia radiance trembles on her sides the lunar rays in long reflection gleam with silver deluging the fluid stream levant and thracian gales alternate play then in the egyptian quarter die away a calm ensues adjacent shores they dread the boats with roars manned are sent ahead with cordage fastened to the lofty prow aloof to see the stately ship they tow the nervous crew their sweeping oars extend and pealing shouts the shore of candia rend the ship is then minutely described falconer has been blamed for adding to it frowning artillery but every levant trader carried guns and the britannia is represented as a first-class merchantman the natives gather round the shore in the noonday sun to see the vessel depart majestically slow before the breeze the imperial flag unfurled then towered the masts the canvas swelled on high and waving streamers floated in the sky thus the rich vessel moves in trim array like some fair virgin on her bridal day thus like a swan she cleaves the watery plain the pride and wonder of the aegean main it is impossible for word painting to excel this in clear poetic beauty some of the smaller subsidiary sketches as the waterspout the dying dolphin the troop of porpoises etc are also inimitable the tragic portion of the poem is ushered in by a description remarkable for its vivid expression and melancholy grandeur his race performed the sacred lamp of day now dipped in western clouds his parting ray his languid fires half lost in ambient haze refract along the dusk a crimson blaze till deep emerged the sickening orb descends and cheerless night o'er heaven her reign extends sad evening's hour how different from the past no flaming pomp no blushing glories cast no ray of friendly light is seen around the moon and stars in hopeless shade are drowned the characters of the chief officers of the vessel are well delineated and contrasted albert the commander is brave liberal and humane the father of his crew rodmond the next in command is coarse boisterous and obstinate yet dexterous and fearless as a seaman one fine touch of humanity redeems his character amidst the horrors of the wreck the helmsman is struck blind by the lightning rodman who heard a piteous groan behind touched with compassion gazed upon the blind and while around his sad companions crowd 
he guides the unhappy victim to the shroud hide thee aloft my gallant friend he cries thy only succour on the mast relies the third in command is arion or falconer himself who is just mentioned when this modest and striking transition is made but what avails it to record a name that courts no rank among the sons of fame Polemon, the friend of arion and his love story somewhat interrupt the progress of the narrative yet few readers would wish them away his passion is one of unsophisticated nature and simple truth a scene from arcadian life and it is in many parts touched with great delicacy and tenderness objection is more justly made to the historical episodes and classical allusions with which the poem abounds these occur chiefly towards the close of the work when the reader's anxiety and interest are strongly excited by the impending catastrophe we see the ship quivering o'er the topmost waves or plunging headlong down the horrid vale the furious breakers lashing the strand on which the crew are every moment in danger of being dashed and we are stopped with an enumeration of the ancient grecian states and their philosophers with the delphic oracle parnassus and helicon there is much tawdry ornament tumid expression and forced comparison in these passages but the poet no sooner touches the sea than he regains his native strength his verse rises and swells like the tempest and in such lines as the following we hear the voice of a great poet mingling with the storm thus they direct the flying bark before the impelling floods that lash her to the shore high o'er the poop the audacious seas aspire uprolled in hills of fluctuating fire with laboring throes she rolls on either side and dips her gunwales in the yawning tide her joints unhinged in palsied languors play as ice flakes part beneath a noontide ray the gale howls doleful through the blocks and shrouds and big rain pours a deluge from the clouds from wintry magazines that sweep the sky descending globes of hail impetuous fly high on the mass with pale and livid rays amid the gloom pretentious meteors blaze the ethereal dome in mournful pomp arrayed now buried lies beneath impervious shade now flashing round intolerable light redoubles all the horror of the night such terror sinai's trembling hill o'erspread when heaven's loud trumpet sounded o'er its head it seemed the wrathful angel of the wind had all the horrors of the skies combined and here to one ill-fated ship opposed at once the dreadful magazine disclosed and this angel of the wind is personified in a few lines of great power and lo tremendous o'er the deep he springs the inflaming sulphur flashing from his wings hark his strong voice the dismal silence breaks mad chaos from the chains of death awakes loud and more loud the rolling peals enlarge and blue on deck the fiery tides discharge the resources of the seamen in this awful extremity the throwing of the guns overboard and the mournful consultation of the pilots are depicted with a terrible reality 
the incident of cutting down the mast seems like a great and sublime sacrifice exciting intense sympathy fast by the fated pine bold rodman stands the impatient axe hung gleaming in his hands brandished on high it fell with dreadful sound the tall mast groaning felt the deadly wound deep gashed beneath the tottering structure rings and crashing thundering o'er the quarter swings the ship at length breaks up we watch it with the painful interest due to a living being lifted high by a tremendous wave she strikes in her descent upon the marble crags and wounded plunges and reels over the heaving surge a second shot bilges the splitting vessel and a third renders asunder the solid oak her crashing ribs divide she loosens parts and spreads in ruin o'er the tide the scene of agony and despair which ensues is portrayed with affecting minuteness and solemnity no reckless or desperate seaman leaps overboard anticipating death as in the shipwreck described by byron there are no yells or demands for intoxicating drink calm manly sorrow and christian resignation mark the hour of horror and death and when the tragedy is closed the poet's art is seen in the picturesque addition of a troop of grecian peasants who roused by the blustering tempest repair to the summit of cape colonna and gaze down with horror on the flood and ruin below they descend to the beach to succour the few survivors three still alive benumbed and faint they find in mournful silence on a rock reclined the generous natives moved with social pain the feeble strangers in their arms sustain with pitying sighs their hapless lot deplore and lead them trembling from the fatal shore with these lines so exquisite in their simplicity and pathos the poem closes like some magnificent and agitating piece of music terminating in a few notes of plaintive melody falconer composed his poem chiefly with a view to the gratification of his brother seamen though they formed then and formed still but a small proportion of his readers he therefore made a liberal use of terms of art or technical expressions the effect of which is to render some few passages obscure they do not occur however in the more impassioned scenes and their intrusion is amply compensated for by the air of truth and authenticity which they impart to the descriptions we are taken on board the ship as it were instructed in its architecture and witness every action of the crew attention is roused by the interjection of such phrases as all hands on more reef topsails reef or starboard again and their purport is soon ascertained and all this professional lore of the poet is said to serve a purpose of practical utility and value the poet according to mr clark contains within itself the rudiments of navigation if not to form a complete seaman it may certainly be considered as the grammar of his professional science i have heard he adds many experienced officers declare that the rules and maxims delivered in this poem for the conduct of a ship in the most perilous emergency form the best indeed the only opinions which a skilful mariner should adopt 
we possess therefore a poem not only eminent for its sublimity and pathos but for an harmonious assemblage of technical terms and maxims used in navigation which a young sailor may easily commit to memory and also with these such scientific principles as will enable him to lay a sound foundation for his future professional skill and judgment poetry has seldom received or earned this praise of direct utility for though virgil embodied in his exquisite verse the rules of husbandry he never perhaps made a practical farmer nor would falconer have taken his place as a british classic if he had not soared far beyond his nautical precepts and description these are only subordinate and accessory to his power of touching the heart and painting to the eye and imagination in the light of his poetry the britannia sails with a glory not its own and the perils and adventures of the voyage are invested with a moral beauty and interest it is this blending of the ideal with the real of the picturesque and poetical with the pathetic and sublime that constitutes the charm of the narrative and a poem thus founded on truth and nature elevated by imagination and presenting the most affecting examples of human suffering and moral heroism may be said to rest on an imperishable basis it has survived many revolutions of taste and opinion and unquestionably will be read as long as british enterprise and valor maintain their empire on the sea end of section two